Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because I wear Gucci, I wear Prada at the same damn time. But regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh, hell yeah, my thickies. Welcome to the show, everyone. Recording this week at Club Thickness. Quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitch to watch us play games like Marvel's Avengers and other superhero video games. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes along with all of our socials. Lots of episodes of Mike's Thick Stack are dropping over the next few days, so make sure you subscribe if you have not yet. Now for the city shoutouts. What's good, San Jose? Ashburn, Virginia, staying classy. Columbus, Ohio, thank you so much. Welcome back, Warwick, Rhode Island. Hey, down in Knoxville, and finally, the home of the Golden Gate Bridge, San Fran, high, high, high. As always, we start by rating the thickness of my stack, so pour the syrup on your waffles while we check out Mike's Thickometer. Oh, yeah, Mike's Thickometer. Thick like a Thanksgiving turkey, this week clocks in at an 8 out of 10 on Mike's Thickometer. Holy thickness, Batman. That's a lot of books. In case you're curious, the stack this week has a substantial DC advantage, but damn son, it's a lot. This week, we begin with the DC books. Okay, we start with Action Comics number 1026. I give this a 4 out of 5. This has been the better of the two Superman books, in my opinion. And this one does some cool presentation stuff. It's largely shared from Brainiac 5's point of view and how he has no recollection of this event. It's a big battle with Parasite from another Earth. The K-Squad, the Kent family, has trouble really containing him. Meanwhile, the crew at the Daily Planet is dealing with Sophia Leone and her claims that Lois is not from this Earth and alleges that she can prove it. Meanwhile, Clark picks up on the fact that Parasite is from another Earth and moves towards Star Labs but gets distracted by Red Cloud. The rest of the Kryptonians, including Connor, miniaturize Parasite, which is adorable, and put him in stasis. Clark is in dire straits as the issue ends, as he's seemingly being choked out by Red Cloud, and Lois is actually arrested. I love the presentation of this book, because you have to constantly turn the book as it goes forward. I also love that it's largely action sequences that force you to see how the book will really develop. If you've listened to the show, you know I love John Romita Jr.'s art, but I know it's not for everyone. I'm so invested in this book over Superman, which is crazy because it's the same writer. Alright, moving on to Batgirl number 50. I gave this a 4 out of 5 co-DC book of the week. This is the finale for Barbara Gordon's solo title, which is sad because it's such a good book. There are three stories in this issue. The main wrap-up, a story about Batgirl and her rogues gallery, and a chill story with Babs and some of her superheroine friends. In the first story, there's quite a bit of fallout from the last issue. She deals with the death of her brother, her strained relationships with her dad, as well as the Bat family, specifically Nightwing, who she tears into a little. There's a little montage that shows how hard she works, not just as Batgirl, but as Barbara Gordon, to enact change in Gotham. This story also introduces Ryan Wilder, who's going to be Batwoman on the CW. It gets a little meta, but that's okay. She also makes amends with Jason Bard as Batgirl, and he makes amends with her as Barbara. Babs goes back to work at Congresswoman Alejo's office and convinces her to stand with the people of 
Babs goes back to work at Congresswoman Alejo's office and convinces her to stand with the people of Gotham and march with them publicly. At the end of this story, she commits herself to Gotham. In the next story, Babs recounts how she always puts herself aside to help the other heroes, despite the fact that they don't really seem to appreciate it. She tracks down someone called Vi Ross, aka Virus, who's planning to infect Gotham with multiple viruses at the same time, like real-world fucking viruses, <laughs> which, uh, you know, sucks. She stops it by the end of the story, making it clear that the other heroes need to respect her time and contributions. Finally, there's a D&D themed story featuring Huntress, Orphan, Spoiler, and Black Canary with Batgirl as the DM or Dungeon Master, if you're not familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, which, <laughs> being the nerd that I am, I totally am. Babs forces them to try different tactics in the game, which goes against their personalities, and initially they're not really a fan of that, but they're interrupted by something going on at the wharf. The adventuring party goes out with Oracle's eyes on everything, but they have to stay in character and do something different the entire time. It forces them to rely on skills that they have, but they don't often use, which makes them all a little bit more creative. My favorite is Spoiler remaining in her bard class uh, and, and singing is at the criminals to try and distract them before engaging them. They stop these child traffickers and then go back to their game. I think this issue is just really strong, with the exception of maybe parts of the middle story, but it overall is a love letter to the strength and brilliance of this character, and I think it's a great send-off. I just wish it was an ending. Alright, next title we have Batman Superman number 13. I gave this a 3 out of 5. The Brainiac story continues for the world's finest duo and opens with Steel and Batwoman arriving on the moon and beating the hell out of a bunch of robots. Meanwhile, Batman and Superman are busy destroying robotic copies of their rogues gallery, and it's fun, honestly. Especially when Batman gets the robotic Joker. He, he cracks his knuckles and is like, this might actually be a little bit fun. That same Joker robot goes after Robot Lex, and Batman reveals to Superman that no computer can accurately process Joker's chaotic nature. Things are about to escalate when Steel and Batwoman show up. The program reveals a robot combo of Batman and Superman, and it flies off to Earth. This is a fun story without any real substance or continuity impact, but to me it's worth the read. Not everything has to be heavy and dramatic and massive story implications. Comics are best when they're enjoyable. And it looks, you know, just normal. There's nothing spectacular. It's not terrible. It's just a fun read. Alright. Next up, we have Batman Three Jokers number 3, the finale. I gave this a 4 out of 5. Here's your other co-DC book of the week. Uh, it's just the finale of the quick three-issue Black Label miniseries. There's quite a few heavy, and if used in continuity, game-changing moments in this book. There's a blow-up between Red Hood and Batman in the beginning of the book about how Jason put a bullet in one of the Jokers, and about how Batman never put in the obvious solution to his Joker problem. Batman gets an alert that a critically ill Joe Chill has been taken. Joe Chill has been writing letters to Bruce all this time, even before his illness, attempting to show how he's reformed in his time in prison and how he's remorseful. Batman finds a note that Joker left for him in Joe Chill's letters, and it sends him, Batgirl, and Red Hood to the theater where his parents were murdered. Jason and Babs have their own fights to deal with, while the criminal Joker has Joe Chill tied up, ready to be turned into a brand new Joker, who he claims would be the perfect 
avatar for a new Joker. He plays a video that explains Joe Chill's motive for killing the Waynes and the massive mistake that he shortly realized after that he made and how badly he wants to apologize to Bruce. Meanwhile, Jason gets shot by the comedian Joker and the comedian Joker escapes after being hit in the face with a camera by Babs. The criminal Joker tries to set his plan in motion is rather easily stopped and ends up being killed by the comedian. The police show up taking the comedian into custody and Jason gets the hardcore friend zone treatment from Babs after they hooked up last issue. After, the comedian reveals his super dark chaotic nature when he's being taken in. He reveals that he knows all their names and is only interested in killing them. The book then has several epilogues. Joe Chill dying and Bruce forgiving him. Jason leaving a letter expressing his love for Babs, which is ominously swept away by someone in a fun-time cleaner's outfit. And finally, Bruce reveals that he knows Joker's name and has known it since about a week in to dealing with the Joker. He also reveals that he has a family and that he's keeping hidden away in Alaska from the press and more importantly from the Joker himself. I'm happy that this was a three-issue series with potential for a follow-up. I just think this issue really makes you focus on the larger concept of Batman as well as Bruce's ability to be an effective leader when he carries so much baggage. I think the Barbara Jason angle is interesting because it's not really explored often, but I don't like them as a couple personally. I'm happy that the book whittled it down to just one Joker by the end, and I'm not mad that Jason killed one. It makes perfect sense. Oh yeah, this book is jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Amazing detail, excellent character models, great facial work. I love every bit of the art here. Next up, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, Rise of the New God, 3 out of 5. This is not what I expected. I thought this was going to set her on a darkest night, but I was wrong. This story follows the Chronicler, whose job is to chronicle. Chronicle, yeah, that's, that's it. That's what he does. His job is to survey the universe, but he has to work quickly before the Darkest Night and Perpetua destroy the sector and this most important part of this universe. He finds Psycho Pirate in holding and takes his unique memories, which haven't changed through all these crises and reboots, and quickly steps away in search of even more information. Then he finds Viral Dox, the son of Brainiac, in search of more information. He gathers more info, but it still isn't enough. He goes as far as to resurrect Metron from the ashes around his Mobius chair. Metron explains that being a passive observer isn't enough and that he needs to be a believer so that the Omniverse might live on. It seems he's been convinced as that story ends. Then we get a side story about the Green Lantern Corps, but specifically Jon Stewart's role of leadership. He works hard to save the passengers of the ship and ultimately offers up a Green Lantern ring to those on the ship to help save Earth. Now, both stories are beautifully illustrated. I love the art style of the first story a little more than the second story, but it's beautiful either way. I just felt the stories were just okay, but they weren't can't-miss stories. You can skip this one if you want. Next up, Detective Comics number 1029. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. This book continues to be a really solid eat, read. This book continues to be a solid read, issue to issue. This issue, however, introduces the Mirror, who is after the identities of Gotham's protectors with his gargoyle hunters. This is the first real book at how a leaner Batman operates. He jumps into a car chase with bank robbers who have the bank manager as a hostage. Bruce does some creative problem solving to stop them and actually collects his things afterwards because he can't afford to leave them on the streets anymore. 
He simultaneously cheered and heckled as he leaves to change back into Bruce Wayne. Bruce goes to a fundraiser to benefit Chris Nakano for mayor, who I suspect is also the mirror. I'm not sure, though. As the night goes on, the boat that they're on the fundraiser on gets taken out to sea and then promptly robbed. Bruce signals Nightwing, who comes in and stops the robbers alongside Nakano. As Bruce returns to Wayne Manor, he realizes that someone has been in the cave and going through his casebook and knows immediately that it was Damien, seemingly setting up another round for father and son. I like how this book has direction and conflict baked in at the corners. I also like the art style of this book. Lots of scratchy parts, but detailed and defined in other places. Just a cool look for a book like this. Unless the main book really takes a turn, this is the can't-miss-Batman title, in my opinion. Next up, we have Flash, number 764. I gave this a 2.5 out of 5. This issue pits Barry directly against Dr. Alchemy with harrowing results. The issue starts with a talk between Barry and Iris, who not so subtly hints at wanting a ring on her finger when Alchemy attacks. Flash steps in and saves some officers, but Alchemy uses Mercury to burn his mask, which Flash removes and then vibrates his face at super speed to conceal his identity. Barry gets bogged down trying to figure out how to stop Alchemy and misses a whole lot, especially crucial time with Iris, but he figures out the best way to stop him in his mind. Except, Alchemy finds a way to strip him of the speed force, leaving him helpless on the floor. Except, Alchemy finds a way to strip him of the speed force, leaving him helpless on the floor after a well-placed punch to the gut. I'm not sure where this is going, but we just saw Barry fully deconstructed, and I'm not sure that now is the right time to just keep kicking him. I just want fun establishing adventures before a villain comes along and really roasts the Scarlet Speedster again. I do like the art in this book, but the story left me wanting something a bit different. Next up, we have Justice League Dark number 27. I gave this a 4 out of 5. The horror-based comics right now are super fun to read, and this is a big one to me. Justice League Dark squares off against the Upside Down Man following John Constantine's sacrifice in the last issue. The Justice League Dark opens up on Upside Down Man after Diana takes Hecate's power again. In the battle, Khalid binds Upside Down Man as the League closes in on him. Swamp Thing sacrifices his body to create life where there had been none previously, along with the combination of Man-Bat Serum, which... Upside Down Man boasts about not being enough, while taunting Khalid about not being strong enough to contain him. Kent merges again to become Dr. Fate and blasts Upside Down Man with an insanely powerful bolt, but Upside Down Man survives, which devastates Zatanna. Zatanna remembers the cost of magic and performs a spell to merge their bodies, which leaves a disturbing final image in this book. The art in this book is awesome because it's so disturbing and is necessary for a book like this. The weirder and more disturbing, the better. I like the story as well, specifically the antagonist. What a creepy, cool villain. I'm excited to read the next issue of this book. Here we ordinarily would have Suicide Squad number 10, but I'm still behind on that. I will catch us everybody up in a clean, concise issue specifically dedicated to Suicide Squad. Finally, on the DC end, we have Wonder Woman number 765. I gave this a 2.5 out of 5. The body cop story continues in this issue. Early on, Diana's talking to Clark about what's going on, and he offers to help, but she declines because she has a secret fear about Clark under Max's control. Max and Diana go to Zandia, 
basically a place for criminals and criminal activity that is legal, kind of like Madripoor in the Marvel Universe, if you're not familiar. They go, and as a fight breaks out, Diana gets involved and Max disappears. He quickly discovers that there's a price on his head, and that not if not for Diana finding him and intervening, he was as good as dead. They discover that they have to go after Count Vertigo, who's experiencing a bit of a revolt. Vertigo uses his powers to quell the rebellion, but also knocks Max and Diana out of the sky in the invisible jet. After a crash landing, it turns out that Diana's blinded. I'm not so sure about this story right now. I like aspects, but others just seem to fall flat for me. I like that Vertigo is behind a lot, but the constant what's Max Lord up to thing has kind of worn thin on me. The art is cool, especially the faces. I wish this just wasn't quite so much of a tie into the movie so we could get something different out of this tale, but here we are. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, we're going to jump into these Marvel books. Hey, everybody, Sam here from The Twisted Cape. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out The Twisted Cape's T Public page, which we have live right now for you to purchase any and all of your clothing needs with Twisted Cape logos on them. We got shirts, socks, maybe. Wow. We got other shirts with hoods on them, and they have longer sleeves. So warm. We got everything you could ever want with Twisted Cape logos on them. So, again, please be sure to check out the Twisted Cape's Tee Public page. Check out the link in the description and be sure to pick up your favorite stuff right now. Thanks, everybody. And now, back to Mike's Thick Stack. Yeah, we're back. And you're back. And I'm back. And you're back. And I'm back. Which means we're back. Awesome. Do these Marvel books now, starting with Amazing Spider-Man number 51. I gave this a three and a half out of five. The story is starting to pick up in this guest-filled book in which we get appearances from Silk, kind of, Doctor Strange, and Black Cat. Cindy, who is still being possessed by Kindred, crashes the Sanctum Sanctorum and gives Spidey and Strange all they can handle until Steven gets mad and holds her in place. There's a tense exchange where Kindred reveals that Pete is withholding information and screams for Pete to confess. There's an invitation for Pete to join Kindred as Cindy leaves. Pete implores Stephen for help and says that he's not taking no for an answer. It's quite the impassioned speech. Dr. Strange tries to help using the hand of the Vishanti, but it doesn't work. And when Spidey tries to get Strange to explain what's going on, he's thrown out of the house. Now we find out Spidey's enlisted black cat to steal the hand of the Vishanti and record the incantation that was being used. Spidey goes to the astral plane where he's antagonized by Kindred Moore and then wakes up in a coffin and digs himself then out of a grave. He makes his way to a mausoleum where he discovers Kindred surrounded by many corpses from the past. This issue had some trippy moments dealing with Doctor Strange as well as the real sense that Kindred was intent on wrecking Peter Parker as well as Spider-Man. The knowledge that it's his former best friend doing all of this is going to be quite a gut punch to Peter later on. I love the look of this issue. Patrick Gleason should also do a Doctor Strange book regularly because it just looks so weird and crazy as anything involving Doctor Strange should. Alright, next up we have Fantastic Four, antithesis number three. Gave this a two out of five. This is the penultimate issue of this quick little miniseries. I'm not sure I feel about this overall. The story is cool, but the art, oh my god, no. Anyway, 
It opens with Johnny and Ben exploring Galactus's ship that ends in an off-panel prank, which I wish we had seen. Meanwhile, Reed confesses to Sue that he's been losing a step mentally and talks about how lost he would be without his intellect. It's determined that they're going after Antithesis, but they need a power-up, which Galen gives them by imbuing them all with the power cosmic. The team splits up to go after the forces that Antithesis has been amassing, and there's an immense pain when they absorb the powers. They release the power at the ship, powering it up enough to blast Antithesis back into the negative zone. Galactus is supposed to regain his powers as part of the aftermath, but Reed has seemingly double-crossed him and stolen the power for himself. Again, I'm enjoying the story, but the art is really taking me out of it, specifically the work on the faces. I am just not a fan, but the story is so cool. Unfortunately for me, the art drags down the overall score. One more issue to go. Next up, we have Immortal Hulk number 39. I give this a 4.5 out of 5. This is your Marvel Book of the Week. I cannot recommend this book enough. It opens with a flashback of sorts where Leader meets Brian Banner, where he offers to allow Brian to live again because, you know, they're in hell. Of course it's a setup, and Leader's head splits open, an almost alien-style tentacle comes out of the opening, and he consumes Brian's brain to give access to the information about the green door that he's been seeking. This rouses the one below all who Stearns makes his pitch to. Back in Banner's mindscape, Devil Hulk is beating the holy hell out of Leader when Leader uses tricks and Brian Banner's form to throw things off. He grabs Bruce and Baby Hulk, the, the you know, basically regular toddler Hulk, basically grabs Devil Hulk to stop him from killing Stearns. Never one to pass up on an opportunity, though. Leader does his face split thing again and rips out and consumes Devil Hulk's heart. Toddler Hulk just has this break where he says over and over again that it's not what he wanted in the real world we get a moment with puck and an imprisoned hulk with bits of this conversation bleeding through spliced with joe Fixit yelling about the predicament at the end banner is whimpering for joe saying that he can't see and that he feels like he's being eaten and thinks that something has killed the hulk as wild as the story here here is the art is unbelievable the expression of the horror aspect is something that is absolutely nuts. Also, let's not look down on the fact that Hulk, and Banner specifically, is in some real trouble. Running up against a team of Leader and the One Below All in the Mindscape and Hell is bad, and even if he makes it out, his physical body is in Gamma Flight prison in space. There's a lot to overcome here, and that ride has been phenomenal. Next up, we have Savage Avengers number 13. I gave this a 3 out of 5. This issue starts with a team meeting on the moon protected by Doctor Strange, who's getting a lot of play this week, going over the threat of Kulin Gath and his cannibalistic quest for magical knowledge. Conan tells a story around what seems to be a full-on orgy where a Shimagorath-possessed woman attacks them all. He kills her, and then the girls take him back to bed, which Black Widow hilariously catches on to. He's like, no one's going to say anything about that? And they went back to bed? They went back to bed? Uh, that's great. <laughs> this story clarifies a brother voodoo vision, which helps Stephen Strange form a plan. They're splitting up into two teams, one to take down a dragon and the other to halt, hunt Kulingath's acolytes. Stephen goes into Shumagorath's dimension and tries to cut things off while the team prepares for their tasks. When Doctor Strange returns, he summons Conan and says if Gath is wounded and not killed, try to bring a taste back, which... Cooling Gath is watching all along. If I had to hazard a guess, the last part is a setup. 
As much as I like this book, I'm a little frustrated that it's taken so long to assemble a proper team and give them a bona fide mission. I feel like there's been a ton of Conan in this book, but most books like this thrive off of the team aspect. I love the members of this team and would like to see more of them together in the future. The book looks nice, but I really miss Mike Deodato Jr. on this book. His style is emulated here, but it's not quite the same. Next up, we have Shang-Chi number two. I give this a three out of five. There is a flashback at the beginning of this issue about how Shang-Chi and Sister Hammer are sneaking around looking for crystal cakes after they're told they don't have any more. Instead of cakes, they find dead bodies that are seemingly being revived for some purpose. They're discovered by their father, who gets violent with them quickly. They both have moments where they save each other, but Sister Hammer is taken away and shown quote-unquote mercy as Shang-Chi is kept around. He assumed that she was killed, but is clearly wrong. In the present day, Shang-Chi dives out of a plane being flown by Leiko and is immediately attacked as his parachute opens. He lands and confronts his attackers and comes across his sister for a tearful reunion. They catch up over food and crystal cakes, and as Shang-Chi asks what happened to his little sister, he starts to get sick. In the move that was kind of predictable to me, the cakes were poisoned and he quote-unquote dies. He's awakened by his, I guess, dead father, I'm not sure, speaking to him. And as he wakes up on a table, he's immediately attacked by those corpse dudes from the beginning of the issue. He's stabbed with one of their hands and starts to bleed blood that looks like a, the night sky. He's rescued by Sister Dagger and uh, the brother, whose name I can never remember. They're on a boat. I bet they never thought they'd be there. But either way, Shang-Chi then sees, I guess, again, what I think is his dead father in the distance. I like the kinetic nature of the art style on this, but I'm not sure where the story's going. But in a good way. It's not completely crazy, but it seems fun, and I'm excited to see this book continue to develop. All right. Now we get our X of Swords, Town of Swords, whatever crossover uh, issue for this episode. Uh, X of Swords, Stasis number one. I gave this a three out of five. Stasis is an apt title for this book because there's a lot of things held in place before this whole thing kicks into another gear, I hope. An emissary from Saturnine is sent out with an invitation to Parliament. There's a vote by the Parliament for the contest, kind of like how our backwards-ass Congress works, and Apocalypse gives what turns out to be a really shitty pep talk as they're transported to Otherworld. We get a speed version of how Arako has assembled their swords. The X-Men go to their rooms and find cards that intrigue some of them and anger others, including Apocalypse. He goes to confront Saturnine, who explains that the cards are unique, and she takes him down an elevator after some conversation and takes him to see his wife, surprising him. There are some cool aspects to this story, but it's definitely a calm before the storm type of issue. As always, the art here is top-notch and a joy to see, especially with so many different characters and stories being juggled here. While it excited me for the future, this issue didn't have a ton going on in it. I'm guessing that's the last time I'll be able to say that about this event. Okay, as we start to wrap up here, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter, at SpiderMike29. Looking ahead to next week, there are some books I'm looking forward to reading on the DC side. Deceased, number 5, Hellblazer, number 2, and Young Justice, number 20. On the Marvel side, the Amazing Spider-Man 51.LR, that's those tie-in issues, Avengers, number 38, Thor number nine, and of course the X of Swords crossover. So we got some stuff up on YouTube, so make sure you're subscribed to that. 
Don't miss a drop of our awesome content. We're going to have so much more coming for you soon. We have some merch on Public, so check the link in the show notes to get your hands on some of this sweet, sweet gear. That's all the time we have for this week. Of course, make sure that you subscribe to The Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform or just listen on thetwistedcape.com. We're at The Twisted Cape, no spaces, on every social media platform. Facebook, The Gram, Twitter, and YouTube. Make sure you tune in weekly on Wednesday to The Twisted Cape's live show on Facebook or YouTube and live in them comments. We go over them at the end of every show. Finally, feel free to shoot us feedback to this show to thetwistedcape at gmail.com and make sure you use the subject line MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, two bad bitches at the same damn time. Stay safe, wear a mask, stay twisted. Fix that.